Right, yeah, that's, I know that's quite an insane song that we sang, and I know that theologically it might actually be challenging. Who's, who's honest enough to admit that that was a little bit challenging theologically to sing? Bunch of us, eh? To say, there's a song that, I can't remember who the, who the author is, who, who wrote the song. It says, you give and take away. Remind me? Eh? Hills, blessed be your name. So there's that song that has a similar theme that says, God, you give and you take away. And it's easy for us to sing, God, you give, you give us all of these good things. But what about singing, God, but you always also take away? There are difficult aspects in my life. And so I'm going to jump into tonight's message. It might be a little bit of a different message, but I don't think it should be a somber message if we catch the heart. And I'll explain it. We're busy in a series called Acts 29. The premise of the series being that there are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And it's the story of the early church, the birth of the early church. And our heart's desire as a church is to say, the things that we saw in the Bible, that we read of in the Bible, we want to be a continuation of that early church. So there were 28 chapters of amazing works of God, a group that laid down their lives for Him, that lived passionately for God, that saw amazing things on the earth. And we want to say, God, make us chapter 29. Let us be the continuation of your early church. Amen? I hope that's your prayer. It really is my prayer. That's the dream we have that we've been speaking about. And so what we've been looking at is just some of the things that the early church believed. Because if we can get into their heads and see what are the things that they really held to, that they believed, what made it that this group of 120 people could love God so passionately and hold fast to things so passionately that they could turn the world upside down. Because if we just in a little bit, in a little way, can hold on to those things, then we can be those people as well that turn the world upside down. So tonight we're speaking about one of the things that they were, and they were a robust people, meaning life could knock them, but somehow these people kept standing up, the early church, the apostles, the first Christians that we know of. So they were radical. I don't know if you've ever read a little bit of church history, but these guys were actually, all the apostles, the people who follow Jesus, basically all of them, I think, besides one or two, were martyred. They were killed because they were followers of Jesus. They were radical. In fact, you know, Peter, I've always said Peter's my hero in the Bible. Really love the guy because he did stupid things and still, and still God used him. So I'm like, I like that guy because sometimes I do stupid things. But Peter at the end of his life, although at one stage he wasn't robust, at one stage in his life he, he ran away from Jesus. He said, I'll never do it. But when he was confronted, he said, I, I, I don't know this man, Jesus. And he ran away. But the beauty of God is as God worked in him, God made him robust to the point that when they wanted to kill him because he was a Christian, he said, I don't deserve to be crucified like my Savior Jesus Christ. Rather crucify me upside down. And so they hung him on a cross upside down, and that's the way that he died. But there was something in them that just makes me think, oh my, how did they, how did they do that? And then the early church, these people after the apostles, after the original disciples, they were basically all killed for their faith. Have you thought about that? We are so lucky, people. We get to sit in a church and we can worship and there's no persecution. You're not going to walk out here and be killed for your faith. But that was the reality of being in the early church, the reality of being a Christian then. You were killed for your faith if you passionately lived for God. And I never understood it, but the big reason was that the Jews believed that they were blasphemers. So they were saying like these new Christians, they say that Jesus is God, but only the Father can be God, only Yahweh can be God. 
And so they blaspheme against God. So the Jews wanted to kill them, so they had to run away from the Jews. The Gentiles, they were confused about these people because they took the Lord's Supper, and many of them, this is strange, actually thought that the early Christians were cannibals, meaning they eat other people. Because they thought these people say they take the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus as they take communion. And they had this misperception, and, and they thought that we're going to kill these people because they're weird. So we just don't like them. We're going to kill them. And then there was also Ons onslaught because Nero, the Caesar of the time, the original Caesars, the rulers, in order for them to be powerful, they felt like they had to be like gods. And so they would erect these statues in the cities, especially in Rome and in Jerusalem where these people were, the original Christians. And they said, you have to bow before Caesar, worship him as a god. And these Christians were so robust and so passionate about God that they said, we will not do it, we will rather die than do it. And so many of them, the vast majority, if they said they were going to follow Jesus, they died for their faith because of standing for those things. I want to read you Paul's account of the suffering that he went through in his life in 2 Corinthians 11. Now listen to this. This is hectic. If you think you've gone through a tough time because you failed a test, this is a little bit different. Or you went away camping and you didn't have cell phone reception. <laughs> if you think that was bad, listen to what Paul says. I'm going to start a little bit later. And he says, I have been imprisoned more frequently. I've been flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Uh, 40 lashes was the death penalty. So it was just under the death penalty. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Sounds great to be a Christian, eh? <laughs> like this is the prosperity gospel right there. Name it, claim it. It's yours. Prosperity and wealth in Jesus' name. Paul would be like, I don't know about that. He says, three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in, dangers from, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, then I ran to the country and I'm in danger in the country, in danger at sea and in danger from false believers. Don't you think we would call this guy like there's something wrong in your faith, dude? <laughs> you cursed, you better repent, God is punishing you. It almost sounds like that, but it wasn't that. It says, I've labored and toiled and I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst, and I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Is that hectic? That's like quite bad. This is one of the Christians that we look up to the most. He's the guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. These things were not there because he was a bad Christian. They were there because he was a good Christian. And because he was a good Christian, suffering and difficult times followed him. You know, in these times, we've got such a misperception of Christianity. If I follow Jesus, everything's going to be okay. Remember when I got saved, people told me, listen, you'll see, tomorrow when you wake up, the, the birds are going to chirp louder, the, the trees are going to be greener, everything's going to be better. And I'm like, I don't know if that's really in the Bible. I don't know if that's really in the Bible. Where I look at Paul's life here, I'm like, he was a passionate follower of God and still difficulty followed him. And then when I look at my life and I look at our lives, I think, oh man, when difficulty comes for us, aren't we so quick to run away from the Lord, 
to start doubting Him, to start thinking there's something wrong with our faith. We are not a robust people, but these people are robust, and we need to think, how is that possible? And the problem is, if you are a Christian, here's a promise for you right from the mouth of Jesus. Suffering will follow you. Difficult times will follow you. They will. That's not a message they preach in churches many times. Um, but let me read you a scripture, John 16, verse 33. It's a prophecy from Jesus just for you. Go like this and say, I take it for myself. Just do it. Say, I take the promises of Jesus for myself. I take it. Those of you who want a tattoo, this is the tattoo you can get. Don't get um, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Don't get that tattoo. Get this tattoo, John 16, verse 33. Or if you want to put a fridge magnet up on your fridge, this is the one. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me uh, you may have peace. Here's the thing. In this world, you will have trouble. Name it and claim it. Take it for yourself. Jesus has promised you because he's such a good God. He's promised you. He said, put that tattoo on you. Remember this. In this world, you will have trouble. But the big question is, what do we do with the trouble? What do we do with the difficulties? And I'm telling you, if we don't have a robust theology of suffering, then when suffering comes, we are going to struggle so much with our relationship with God. We're going to start doubting. We're going to fall away from Him. And I feel like in church, we don't preach this enough. We don't emphasize it enough. And people come with the misperception, and when difficulty hits, we cannot be like the early disciples. We struggle too much. So I know I mentioned, you know, you get something like first world problems. It's when the cell phone reception don't work or you, your, your WhatsApp deletes itself and things like that. Like that's some suffering that we can go through, but there's actual real suffering that we are going to go through in this life. And as I'm sitting here, I know this might be a little bit more of an, um, a serious message, but I've spoken to many of you, I've, I've had conversations with you, and I know there's some of you who haven't even opened up your lives, but there's real difficult things that all of us go through in this life. I know there's people sitting here who have been raped. There's people sitting here that have been molested, people that I've sp spoken to. Some of you are going to go through sickness, severe sickness in your life. Some of you might die early from cancer. And we don't pretend to understand all of these things, but those are the difficulties that await us in this life. Some of you are going to lose a job unfairly. It's not going to be your fault. You're going to lose a job unfairly. A lot of us, probably all of us, are going to lose loved ones in our lives. People that we feel that's unfair, they love God. How could this happen? But still, we lose those loved ones. Some of us are going to be discriminated against unfairly. We're going to face persecution. Maybe for being a Christian, it's not going to go well for you, for you for standing up for your faith. We'll be unfairly treated. A lot of us suffer and face depression in this life, and we think, how oh, is this possible, God? Why am I struggling with depression? I, I didn't do anything to cause this. Why? Anxiety. I put my hand up. After the babies especially, I started really struggling with anxiety. I love what Andrea said. We don't have to put a mask up in church. We can be real about these things. I, I really started suffering from anxiety, like really, that my breathing struggled, that I, I struggled to breathe and I almost started hyperventilating at some point. Lack of sleep, just pressure from what you're going through. We're going to go through difficult things in this life, and I'm not even mentioning all of those things. Some of us have gone through it. 
some of us are going through it at the moment, and because of Jesus' promise, all of us will go through something in our lives. All of us will. You either just came out of a storm, or you're in a storm, or you're heading into a storm. Is that a good preach, guys? <laughs> Get more Facebook followers from this, eh? <laughs> but it's true. But what is our theology of suffering? What do we do with it? Where is God in the whole thing? How do we understand it? When we are in the tough time, what do we tell ourselves? What do we tell ourselves about God? What do we preach to ourselves? Because what we think about God in those times are of utmost importance for our faith going forward. So I want to speak about, about that tonight and actually go a little bit into depth of where is God when it hurts, actually? Where is God when it hurts? Because that's, that's a question you need to be able to answer. You need to be able, able to answer. So I'm going to look at three parties that are involved in our suffering. Sin causes suffering. You ever done something stupid and suffered because of it? I drank on the school premises when I was about 16 or 17 years old. I got into trouble. <laughs> my, my sin led to, led to suffering. I had to get four lashes from the headmaster. We had an eagle was the emblem of the school. I had to bow down, look the, emblem, look the eagle in the eye, get a whack on my bum, walk around, and stand in line again, and then get my second whack, third whack, fourth whack. Sin has consequences, people. <laughs> it has consequences. So sin causes suffering. Our sin, the sins of other people that you might not have anything to do with. If someone's drunk and they're driving, and they drive into you, that is their sin causing suffering on your part. So sin causes suffering. It's not God, it's sin. Then Satan causes suffering. You know, Satan is not a caricature. He's not, not a mythical being. He's a real being. And the Bible actually tells us that Satan is like a roaring lion walking around seeking whom he may devour through sin. And so sin is going to cause us that. Satan is going to cause us suffering because ultimately Satan wants our suffering to pull us away from God. And so he is going to bring difficulties across your path because he wants you to turn your back on God. And then we'll look at how God is involved in all of this. But I want to explain a key concept to you here. Um, and that is just to get to where God is in this matter. But I want to I speak about love. So you, you better follow me here. I'm, I'm going sin and Satan. But I want to just be in explaining how that causes suffering. I want to speak about love for a moment. So as, as, as an example, my wife, Carla, who's somewhere at the back or with the babies somewhere, she's playing with them. I've spoken about her a couple of times, and now I had to ruthlessly pursue her for about six months until I got her. And she still thinks it wasn't long enough. She said she should have been more difficult to get. She felt like for guys, hard to get is a good principle, and she... She made it really difficult for me. So for about six months, I really had to try. And I drove to Swellendam. I've told you the stories countless times. I had no money in my bank accounts. I had to give my everything. And, and she was reserved. She didn't want to give her love to me. And you know, at any point in that process, if I could, there would have been the temptation for me to flip a switch and say, okay, now you love me. Imagine you had that power, right? Eh? Someone doesn't love you, and you can just go like this, now you love me. Force them to love you. But do you know that love that is forced does not exist? 
if I forced her to love me, if I said to her, Carla, you must love me, was, would that really be love? It wouldn't be love. The only way to gain love is to give love. And what does the Bible tell us? It says that the only reason we can love God is because he first loved us. So God will not force us into loving him. He doesn't force us into loving him. What he does is he gives us a choice, but because by giving choice, you give an opportunity to love. If I don't give you a choice, there's no possibility for love. I hope you're following me here. I don't know if I'm explaining it as well as I should. Trying my best here. But the two, forcefulness and love, do not walk hand in hand. You cannot force someone to love you. It's impossible. Love needs to be a choice. And so what God did in the Garden of Eden is he said, I want people who will love me. That's the heart of God. That's his desire for us. He wants people that really love him. And in order for him to have people that love him, he cannot force us. He can't make us and say, you will love me because love does not exist in it being forced. So what God did in the Garden of Eden is he made Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. <laughs> he made Adam and Eve. Not even. <laughs> Also not Stephen, right? Not Adam and Steve, it's Adam and Eve. <laughs> he made Adam and Eve. <laughs> and in the garden, he, it's not like he gave them 50-50 choice. Actually, he made it quite easy for them. He said, there are all these trees that you can eat of. Pick of any of the fruit of any of these trees. Enjoy it. God gave them a luscious garden to live in. Must have been amazing. But in order for them to really love him, he needed to give choice. God gave choice. He said, I, I give you all of this. I'm giving you like thousands of beautiful things, but I'm putting one thing there in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat of that, you will die spiritually in the end we know. So God gives them a choice. And in the choice, it is love that can exist. If he didn't give them that choice, love could not have existed. And so what we see Adam and Eve doing in the garden is they ultimately through the deception of Satan, so you see how sin and Satan work together. Through the deception of Satan, they pick the fruit that they're not allowed to pick. Always the woman. That's a joke. <laughs> That's, uh, it's probably a bad joke. Um, but Eve picks it first and Adam picks it second and he goes for it. And Adam didn't lead her in that place as he should have led her. So Adam's also the naughty one here. Both of them were the naughty ones. But they fall into sin, and out of that place, God says, now you will die spiritually, and sin enters the world. And from that time on, we've always been at the same place where we have a choice whether to love God or not. God dies on the cross for us. Jesus dies on the cross for us. If you're sitting here, then you have the opportunity to say, God, I love you. Thank you for loving me. I want to love you in response. It's not you earning your salvation. It's not you doing anything for it. It's just responding to the love of God that was given to you. But God gives you a choice. If he didn't give you a choice, it would not be true love. And so, because of the choice, sin exists. Because of the choice. Because we get to choose, and our natural propensity in our heart is always to choose sin, then we end up going towards sin. That's where we naturally start going. And so sin is something that causes us suffering, as I said. And Satan then comes in and he perverts our minds and he gets us to a place where we want to pick sin. He gets us to want the things that God does not want for, it, want for us. 
And if he gets us to pick that, as I said, it, it pulls us away from God. But the beautiful thing about Satan, if there's something that can be said that's beautiful about him, is the reformers said that Satan is on a leash. He's like a dog on a leash. It's a very long leash, but he's a dog on a leash, meaning he can try and pervert us and he can try and pull us away from God to an extent, but God is still ultimately in control. God can say, two year and no further. Remember what he did with Job. Yes, you can do these things. I permit these things, but you may not kill him. I've got you on a leash. Satan cannot just do what he wants. God is still in control. The great reformer Martin Luther said that Satan is God's Satan. Instead, he still belongs to God. He's not his own entity. He's not equal to God. And so he can try and pull us towards sin. He can, he can bring temptation across our path, but only to the point that God allows it. And so this means that sin and Satan will try and bring suffering across our path. And God, here's the knocker, which I'm going to explain. God allows that suffering through sin and through Satan. Very rarely is God the one to cause suffering. Do I believe he can? Yes, obviously he's God. He can cause suffering if he wants. But God uses as a tool sin and Satan to bring suffering about in our lives. He allows it. I really hope you're following me. This is like, feels like it's hitting a bit harder than I thought initially. But he uses those things um, in our lives to bring about change and glory in us. That's why he actually does it. So let's look at a a scripture quickly to explain this. Luke 22, verse 31 to 33. This is si Simon is Peter, okay? It's the same guy. It's just Simon Peter is his full name. And so S Satan comes to, to God, again, exactly like the book of Job. You remember Satan would come to God and say, I want to go test, and I want to bring suffering across Job's path. The same thing happens here. And we read here that Satan says to uh, to, to Jesus that I want to go and sift Peter, and then God allows it. Look at this. Jesus speaks to Peter, and he says, Simon, Simon, or Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So what's happening here? Satan comes into the picture, he asks God because he's, he's a dog on a leash. He can't do anything. He can't bring suffering about that God does not permit. He says, may I bring suffering about in Peter's life? Listen, I'm telling you now, Satan is probably in heaven right now saying, Stalys PM, the people there, God, can I bring suffering across their path? May I do it? May I sift them like wheat? And God is the one that says, yes, I will allow it to an extent. Now, why does God do that? Why would God do that? Why would God allow it? Because God isn't the one that made Peter suffer, but God allowed it. Why would God do that? We see a little hint here, because God knows that if Peter stands firm, his faith will be strengthened. And he says, as you come back strengthened, now go and strengthen your brothers. I want to tell you a little story in, of my life. My mother, um, and she said it's okay if I share this, my mother is um, still actually, she's bipolar. So she's got bipolar disorder. And from when I was a very young boy, she was undiagnosed bipolar. So I think for a long season of her life, she thought that she might have depression. But she'd have these uh, depressed times and also these manic times where she would just spend a lot of money and go crazy. That's how bipolar works. It's down and it's up. There's a lot of ups and downs. 
And as a young boy, obviously that caused quite a bit of suffering in me because you're in an unstable household. My mom and my dad got divorced when I was one or two years old, so she was the one that raised me. I'm an only child. Financially, it wasn't always as stable as it could be. So that caused a lot of suffering in my life. And you know, it's easy for me to look back and say, God, but why would you allow it? Because if my theology says that God is omniscient and he's omnipotent, meaning he controls everything, he's everywhere, I need to say that God was somewhere in this picture. Now, God, I don't think God made my mom bipolar. Amen? I don't think he did, but I think he allowed it. Somehow, and I have to ask, why? Why would that happen? Why would, because there was massive effects on my life. I won't tell you some of the stories, but at times it was really difficult growing up. And then when I was 17 years old, my mom and I got into a big fight one morning. We just fought all the time. We, we hardly spoke because when we spoke, we fought. I was never at home. I tried to be with my friends. It was the wrong friends, got into the wrong crowd, doing the wrong things because I rebelled because I just didn't have a house that I wanted to be in and not a healthy relationship with either of my parents. And so one morning we had a massive fight. We were getting into the car and it was about something stupid. The boot didn't want to open for some reason. Maybe even God in that, I'm not sure. The boot didn't want to open. <laughs> and so my mom and I start fighting, and then she gets into the car, and I hear her picking up the phone, and she speaks to my aunt. And she says to my aunt, I can't do this anymore. I think I want to commit suicide. And that was the first time that I realized in, which, in what a low place my mom was. As a 17-year-old boy, I started crying, and I got into the car, and I said to my mom, I'm not getting out of this car because I know what you want to do, so I just, I don't want to get out of the car. I, I, I'm, I'm too scared. Eventually, my mom persuaded me. She said, no, it's okay. You can get out of the car. I'll be fine. She drove off, and I walked to school. I didn't catch a lift with her any, that day. I was supposed to walk to school. And my family called, and they said, listen, we, we heard what happened with your mom, and we don't think you should go to school today. We're going to come and pick you up. And I think for the first time, they realized what a big problem this was. And they said, my mom had said this many times before. It was only the first time that I'd heard it. And so my family came and they said, listen, we need to do a bit of an intervention here. So what we're going to do is you are going to move out of your school, 17-year-old boy. You've been in the same high school. It was the second term, going into the second term. We're pulling you out of school that week, and we're putting you in a new school. Now, that's hectic. It's like... That's not great. So they take me out of the school. I go live with my uncle and my aunt just to give my mom some time to get back on her feet and to, to get on medication and so on. And as I get to this new school, there's a, a camp that a church in the area is doing. And my uncle and aunt sort of visit that church now and then. They're not really part, but they sort of go. And so they say, do you want to go on this camp? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know anyone. I'll go on this camp. It was a catechism camp for grade 10s and 11s. And I go on this camp as a grade 11 boy, and as I go into worship, it's a worship time. I, I was never really part of a church before that. As I'm standing in worship, I experience the presence of God like I've never experienced it in my life. I experience God's love for me like I've never experienced it in my life. It wasn't, it, it wasn't an intellectual conversion for me. It was a conversion of the heart. I, I felt the love of the Father that came close to me in a moment. And I just knew that everything that I'd been living for was not worth it because I tasted of Jesus. And laying down the things that were so important for me was actually so easy. I laid down my music. I laid down my interests. I laid down my old friends. I, 
I just laid down so many things because I've tasted of something that's so much better. And from there, for the next couple of months, I remember when I saw my mom, it was still a bit tense. But as God started working in me, I, I was able to forgive my mom, to love her, to start praying for her, to want her in a better place with God because she used to serve God when she was younger. And so when six months later, she moved to the town that I was living in with my uncle and aunt, and we, live, we moved back into our house together at the end of that year, God had done a work in me for the past six months. I had hardly seen her. But I started reaching out to my mom. And I started saying to her, can we do Bible study together? Can we pray together? And in that place, something started igniting in my mom's heart again. And over the years, as we've spoken, as we've walked together, my mom is in a much better place spiritually than she ever was. So here's the thing. That's a practical real-life example. Suffering, which does not make sense in the moment, when you zoom out, if we hold close to God, God takes suffering and He produces glory in us. He takes something that the devil does, that sin does. My mom's bipolar was not God's doing. I know why the bipolar is there. She was really abused when she was a young girl and she never got over that. That was not God doing that. It was not God. It was someone else's sin that came into my mom's life, brought distortion, brought pain. Somehow God allowed it in that moment and it does not make sense to me. But in God's wisdom, he knew what would come about. He takes a bad thing, the sin of people, through the choice that he gave. He takes the perversion of Satan and he uses those things to bring about glory. He brought my salvation through my mom's suffering. And then through my salvation, he brought the revival again into my mom's life. How clever is God? How wise is God? How all-knowing is God? I would not do it that way. But God does it that way. John Piper has this thing that he says, if you weave a tapestry, a beautiful tapestry, like one of those carpets, then there are darker parts of the tapestry and there are lighter parts of the tapestry. And it's easy in our lives to think this is a good time, it's like a light part. And then we don't understand the dark part. Why am I going through the suffering? Why am I going through the difficulty? But he says only God, only the weaver of that tapestry has the ability to stand back and look at the full picture and knows what he is producing. And that's the same thing with us. When we are caught in the dark moments of life, we so easily get stuck there and we don't understand what God is doing. God is the master weaver. He knows what he's allowing. He knows why he's allowing it. And he knows that he is creating a beautiful picture in and through our lives, although it might not make sense to us. Um, I'm going to read you a last scripture that's quite quite long. I just want to stop one or two times, and, and we're basically going to end with this. Uh, it's Hebrews 12 from verse 5 to 13. Because the question is, as God allows these things, what is He doing? And the biblical word for it is He's actually disciplining us. He's disciplined not as a punishment, disciplined as I am forming you. I am making you into something better. So from verse 5 says, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone whom he accepts as a son. If you go through a difficult time, and you are a Christian, the reason God is allowing it is because He loves you. How strange does that sound? 
He loves you enough to know that if you hold on to him during that time, something will be produced in you that, that shows more of Jesus to the world that show, than showed before. My, um, this is quite a personal story, and it's fine. My, my brother-in-law is sitting here as well, but I, I went through church discipline a couple of years ago, and many of you were here to witness it. I went through a discipline case, and um, as I went through the discipline, it was quite difficult for me, as you can imagine. Like I had to stand up in front of all of you and, and repent, confess my sin to you. And it was probably the most difficult thing that I've ever gone through in my life. But you know what? We, we so quickly forget about the person who was standing next to me, to whom it was also very difficult, and that's my wife. It was also probably the most difficult time of her life. She had to go through that discipline with me, although she did nothing wrong. She had to stand up with me. She had to go through everything with me. And um, my wife's always grown up in a, in a very safe household. They basically lived in the same house. Father did the same job. Mom was at home. Financially, everything's stable. So everything, everything in her life was quite easy, to be honest. There weren't, there weren't many downs in her life. And so when this came about, you better know that that was quite a big down for her. It was quite a difficulty. It was quite a dark moment in the tapestry of her life. But the beautiful thing is I can look back at her life now afterwards, and although it doesn't make sense to me, God, God, why? Why? I look at her before and I look at her after, and I see a different person. I see a different person. Your suffering has a way of making you into a different person. It has a way of producing something in you that cannot be otherwise produced. Romans 5, verse 3 to 5 says that suffering produces character. It produces character. And so that's what God is doing in you. Then the scripture goes on and it says, endure hardship as discipline. Meaning any hardship that you go through, see it as God disciplining you, God shaping you. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, there's another promise for you that you can write on your bicep with a tattoo then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they sought best. But God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in His holiness. Why does He do it? In order that we may share in His holiness, become more like Him. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. Who likes getting a hiding? Not me. I don't like it. But painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That's the testimony of my wife's life. As you get trained by it, as you hold on through the difficult times, it produces something in you. Righteousness and peace. Therefore, strengthen your feeble knees and arms, your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Meaning, come on, suck it up. You're not going to understand it. It's not going to be easy. You're not going to like it. It's not going to be nice when you go through discipline. This life is not always going to treat you fairly. People are not going to treat you fairly. Sin is going to work its way into someone's life or into your life, and it's going to cause pain. Satan is going to pervert a situation to bring pain across your life. But God allows it because He knows what it can do in you. Strengthen your feeble arms. Straighten your weak knees. 
and say, come on, I'm going to keep my eyes on the Lord even through this thing. And let me tell you, you're going to understand it to a point, and then there comes a point where you don't understand it anymore because you are not God, and you better just say, God, I don't understand it, but I know you're doing something in me. You're doing something in me. Just if, if our little girl, for instance, if she comes to me, I'm going to end with this, if she comes to me with a bottle of Coke, there's a lot of sugar in Coke, and she says, Dad, she can't speak, but imagine, <laughs> one of them, <laughs> Dad, may I have this Coke? It's like, it's 7 o'clock at night, and I'm going to go sleep now, may I have this Coke? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say, no, give it to me, and I'll have the Coke, because it's nice, <laughs> I'm fine with it. <laughs> but I'm not going to give it to her. But here's the thing. I, all I can say to her is it's going to cause you to struggle to sleep, but I cannot explain the full physical effect biologically that happens in, in her, even if I understand it. In the same way, God takes us through difficulties. He lets us go through things that we don't understand, and He might give us a simple answer like, just love me through the process. And we say, God, but give me more. Give me more of an answer. And just like that little girl can't explain the thinking of an adult, so we cannot understand the thinking of our God. We cannot see the tapestry. Sometimes we just need to trust until a point, but just let go. Say, God, I'm going to understand until where I can understand. And when I don't understand, I'm going to lean on your promises. I'm going to lean on your goodness. And when I speak to myself in difficult times, when I cry before God, when I when I weep before people, when I open up to the people around me, even if I don't understand, though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you ruin me, though you allow difficulties into my life, I will praise your name. I'll still praise your name. So I don't know what you're going through or what you're going to go through. I don't wish it upon you, to be honest. In a sense, like if I, I wish that I could just say, no, no more tough times for any of us. But God is wiser than I am. And God knows that it's actually good for us. I was spending time with a guy the other day, and it's something that I think Kala actually did with Fonsale at some point. He said, I just want to pray for you, Fonsale, after having coffee. I want to pray for you for suffering. <laughs> because I know what it's going to do in your life when you go through a tough time. It's going to bring you closer to God. So can we just stand as we end?